0: Okay, Okay, we'll have barbecues again next week. (laughs) Sure, we will. Well, it's good to see everybody, good to see our guests. I think finally fall has come. I'm not sure I like it all, but we'll take what God gives us and be happy, won't we? All right, today we continue with our exposition of the Gospel of John. We pick up with chapter 12. We're not going to cover the parameters that I planned. That happens a lot. I I get in there on my computer doing these messages and going back and doing these messages. And I look up and I have 17 pages. And I say, oops, ain't going to happen. <laughs> so then I have to back up and say, well, the parameters will have to be this. But uh, what we couldn't get around to this Sunday, obviously next Sunday, and I'm telling you, it's a great passage. This is too. The parameters of the passage, before I read it, that I had uh, planned, have two divisions really. One is on the way to the cross, and the other is in the way of the cross. It's powerful. This is too. So we're going to talk about on the way to the cross today. And we start reading with first John twelve, and we pick up with verse twelve. Let me read by the way, let me introduce it this way you will uh I'm going to use a word microcosm. Now, most of you have no trouble with that word, I imagine but there may be some to whom it's an unfamiliar word. We see a microcosm in this passage. And it's a microcosm is when you have a big picture and a little picture. A little picture just kind of tells the whole story. Ossie and I have often said, in a providence of God, our coming together, uh, had so many microcosms early on. You know, you just had these little... There it all was for the next 65, 66 years. There it all is. Uh, you see it. Well, you're going to see microcosms in this passage today. This is post-Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast... When they heard that Jesus was in Jerusalem, normally he was in the north of Judea up around Galilee, but Jesus would always come as would all the Jews for the feast of the Passover. They were expected wherever they were, if it could get to Jerusalem to get there. Now we have differing figures from Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian. He was there on the ground. He was a priest. He's just a little after the time of Jesus, so they didn't exactly coincide year-wise. But uh, Josephus and he had no reason to lie. I mean, everybody would have known from Rome to Jerusalem if he were exaggerating. Depending on the specific time, he would say there were as many as one million people there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not New York City. You just can't imagine how you could get them. Many of us have been over there. And you just can't imagine how that could be a million seven. Sometimes they would say as many as two million. Sometimes the figure is one million. But that many people surging and milling about and the excitement, there was a lot of excitement at the Passover feast and this is what they're ramping up for in just in just days. It's going to happen. A lot is happening. A lot is converging. Tremendous excitement on the ground. Well, on the next day, a great crowd had come to the feast. They had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Right now in Jerusalem, that was big. It was the aftermath of the sensation of Jesus raising Lazarus from the tomb. Well, there were other resurrections. Jesus, he had raised the son of the widow of Nain. He had also raised Jairus' daughter. Well, that created a lot of hubbub, but why did this one create such hubbub? Well, the reason was, first of all, it was Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem. The center of Judaism, the religious center of Judaism, that was big. But the other thing was, in the providential timing of God, this was the Passover feast and people from all over the Roman world were there milling about. So you can just imagine what kind of excitement was in the air. But that's not all jesus had done something stupefying you say, why was lazarus any more stupefying than the others well first because it was right there in jerusalem it wasn't out there in the boonies somewhere but that's not the big deal everybody else like the widow of nain they, her husband was in the casket and the guy just died they didn't wait several days and so it just dumbfounded everybody but I mean, he had just died. The body was hardly cold. Jairus' daughter, Jesus had said before, she's not dead, she's sleeping. That was just a metaphor. They laughed. But when she was raised from the dead, doggone it, that threw them for a loop. But what was it about Lazarus? The guy had been in a tomb... How many days? Four days. And his sister said when he started to open the tomb, Lord, I love Martha. She was so practical. She said, Lord, he'll be stinking now. (laughs) I'd have probably said the same thing. This is not timely. You open that, it's going to blow us all away. So... That was why it was such an astounding thing. Just raising him from the dead after he had died, that would have been in itself. But after four days, everybody knew it. And these were prominent people, apparently, and a lot of influential visitors there and mourners there. So that's a little bit of the context. Well, so we see that these people heard that Jesus was coming you had all these witnesses who were there on the ground, boots on the ground. And they were telling this one, that was telling that they were telling somebody else. Then you had these people from Rome and all parts of the Roman world and they were hearing this. And everything that they were hearing began to say in their ears, what would a Jew hear? Messiah. Messiah. There was a lot of expectation of the coming of Messiah in Judaism when Christ was born. But now hearing all these things, telling all these guests, visitors from all over the Roman world. Excitement was gathering. And as we learned early back about verse nine, there was a virtual tourist industry going on as people said, we got to go see. I want to see this. Man, we got to see this. I want to see this guy, Lazarus. He's up and walking around here. We got to go see him. Plus all the disciples of Jesus. Not everybody was. And they did something. All of a sudden, you have the Lazarus effect. You have a uh, an outbreak of religious enthusiasm. Got to explain that term. You hear it a lot in the history of evangelism. There have been some of it in this country and other parts of the world. Religious enthusiasm is more than just enthusiasm like you go to a a game at Oregon State or the University of Oregon. There's a lot of enthusiasm. But religious enthusiasm borders almost on hysteria. And it's almost spontaneous. That's what something like the raising of his Lazarus will do. People were very excited. This perhaps means the advent of the Messiah. So people's emotions were at fever pitch. This was a real fever going on in the city. And they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They weren't going to wait for him to get there. Hey, Bethany was just outside the city, down the valley, the Kidron Valley, then up the other side. Some of us have made that trip up the other side to the top of the Mount of Olives. And just over the brow of the Mount of Olives was this little dinky town called Bethany, and that's where Jesus had put up He and His disciples. Well, now He was on His way, and what we're going to see is the fulfillment of prophecy without Jesus saying a word. They didn't even know what was happening; it didn't hit them. But prophecy's being fulfilled here and here and here. Let's read. Well, these people, they took branches of palm trees, which were kind of the national symbol. And they went out to meet him. They actually went out to greet him. And they began to cry out. This is inspired by the Spirit of God. These people don't even know what they're saying, a lot of them. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to do something. I don't do many of these things. But I'd like for everybody in this room, if you've got a mouth and a will work, not scream it, but cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to see something. Okay. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now multiply that by thousands. Multiply that by thousands just in this room. And you can hear it reverberate across the valley. That's what they were, that's what they were saying. You, those of you, anybody here at the University of Oregon ball game yesterday? I've been down there. This is not the crowd. I dialed the wrong number. <laughs> Sorry about that. But I've, I've been down there and it's, it'll rip your ears off just in that stadium. Well, they had far more than that in Jerusalem that day. And it would have ripped your ears off. And the authorities were getting very, very concerned. So they took branches of palm trees and they were spreading them in his path because who was coming? The Messiah, the king, the king of the kingdom, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus finding a donkey Well, the fuller narrative was because it's narrated in other Gospels. Jesus had told his men, his disciples to him, I want you to go just over there. Of course, they didn't know what was going on. I want you to find a donkey. She'll be with her foal. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anybody says anything to you, it's not in this narrative, it's in another. If anybody says anything to you, you just say, the Lord has need of him. And there'll be no more argument. Bring him to me. So they brought him to Jesus. Jesus was leaving Bethany. I assume, none of the narratives tell us, that he mounted that little foal of a donkey. Not on a great white charger like Alexander the Great might or some Military pretender, just on the humble foal of a donkey, he got on it. Some of his disciples put their clothes on it. That was the saddle. And there came the king of the Jews, the Messiah, slowly making his way on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. It's going to be a little trek. People crying out and saying this. Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it this is prophecy being fulfilled too fear not daughter of zion you know they call new york city what gotham well zion was like that to jerusalem fear not daughter of zion behold your king comes sitting on a colt on a, sitting on a donkey's colt all that was written back there It's written back in Zechariah. Were they getting it? No, they weren't getting it. They were participating, but they didn't know what the heck was happening. Not even Jesus' disciples knew that they were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy relating to the Messiah. Jesus wasn't saying a word. It was just happening. The Spirit of God was stirring up their spirits Is what I said right or wrong? Well, look at verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first. I mean, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and all the rest. They were involved in it. They didn't know the prophecy was being fulfilled right before their eyes. But when Jesus was glorified, a term we're going to talk about more later, doesn't sound he's about to be glorified. He was going to be crucified. Then they remembered that these things were written of Jesus. That they had done these things to him. Then it all came back to him. Jesus said that was going to happen. <laughs> and they started to connect the dots. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. As they said, right, you Remember those things were written back here in the prophets. They all happened right before our ears and right before our eyes. Wow. Well, verse 17, and so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. It was still... (laughs) Everybody, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And many of them had not heard of all the works that Jesus had done go and all of that. This was new to them. It was exciting. They were exuberant. Could this be the Messiah? Wow. Hey, babe, things are happening. Did you hear this? Religious enthusiasm was all over the place. they heard that he had performed this sign. Uh Uh-oh, where you have light, you have darkness. That's always the tension in God's work in this world. Told you that before, I'm telling you again. Just understand that. Well, the Pharisees, who were his bitter enemies, not the only ones, but they led the charge. They were at the vanguard of hostility. They were saying to one another, you see this, you see what I'm seeing? you listening to these people? Gee, his, we're talking about what to do with this Jesus guy. But everybody's going nuts after him. The world has gone after him. Well, this is a microcosm. Remember that word I told you about? It was just a little picture. The world around Jerusalem just seemed to be going after Jesus. Everybody's believing we can't stop it. We've got to somehow shut this down. And then what happens? Microcosm. Then there were certain Greeks. You read that in your Bible all the time. The Jew, anybody that wasn't a Jew, the Jewish people called the Greeks. Because among the Gentiles, they were the most prominent, even though the Romans kind of ruled the world. The Greeks had been the empowering influence behind them all. So they called them the Greeks. There were among the Greeks certain who were going up to worship at the feast. These Greeks, these Gentiles were probably most of them what we call proselytes. They were Gentile peoples living among the Jewish diaspora, the scattered Jews all over the world. Jews had synagogues everywhere. Some despised the Jews. A lot despised the Jews, just like a lot despise you and me today. But others were attracted to the message. They were attracted to Judaism. Judaism the Judaism which told of the coming Messiah. They had gone up to worship at the feast, most of them. Some of them were just possibly tourists. You know, everywhere there's something exciting going, and they're always tourists. Therefore, verse 21, they came to Philip. This is so typical. Philip was not an arch-prominent disciple. Somehow they were attracted to this guy, Philip, who was kind of out on the fringes, one of Jesus' first disciples, but not one of his most influential. He was from Bethany of Galilee, so he knew, he knew Greek very well, possibly Latin. He was from the Gentile world. They picked up on that somehow, and they began to ask Philip, hey, man, This is exciting stuff. This is big. You're one of his disciples, right? It's the way things still work. We would like to see Jesus. Do you think you could work that out? Sir, get that sentence. We wish to see Jesus. Talk about that in a minute. Well, Philip was not on the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Well, you notice that sometimes jealousies break out everywhere, but even among Christians. One's not as close to the center of power as the other. Even in Jesus' circle, there was an inner circle, there was an outer circle. The outer circle was loved, and the outer circle played a big role in the advancement of the church after Jesus had been glorified. Talk about that term coming up. Wow. But they were still very much a part of the mission. Jesus had a plan for every one of them. Well, in this case, Philip knew that Andrew was a little closer to the inner circle. Andrew brought along Philip, and they came and they told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we're going to end right there, but not just this moment. I've got another hour to go. Hang on. we got a few things here that we really need to talk about. I want to talk about that phrase, sir, we would see Jesus. So many of the things I say over the years, and I've been here many years, you've heard me say before, some more recently, they're worth repeating every time I say them. It bothers me quite a lot, actually, though I think I know what people mean. When I hear them say and see a lot of it online. Well, Christianity does this. Christianity believes that. We're not about Christianity. Well, you say, Jim, yes, we are. Yes, we are in a certain way. We're not about a system. We're not about a religion. We're not about a philosophy. We're not about a code of ethics. We are about what? Christianity is fill in the blank. I'm not hearing it like I want to hear it. Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. Christianity is not a person. It's not a philosophy. It's not a system of ethics. It is not a religion per se, though there is a religion around the worship of Jesus. That's not what we're about. I'm not trying as a church. I'm not trying as a pastor to win anybody to Christianity. I'm trying to be an instrument. We are trying as a church to be instruments in drawing people into the arms of Jesus, the Savior and the Lord. I like the way those guys said it. Sir, we would what? See Jesus. They got right to the nub of it. So let's all remember We're not the only church on the planet, but let's remember, as long as I'm pastor of this church, this is about Christ. This is about drawing as instruments of the Spirit of God, drawing as God would enable us, men and women, boys and girls, into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I saying creeds don't mean anything? Yeah, creeds mean a lot. They don't mean anything, though, without a credible relationship to the Son of God. Right doctrine is important, but we're not about doctrine. I say this lovingly, what I'm about to say. Uh, every side of the theological fence has its issues. I, I grew up, some of you maybe not, won't even understand your background as such, That you won't understand maybe what I'm talking about. But we belong to the evangelical world, which I don't know what it means anymore. But in that evangelical world, there are schools just like there were Sadducees and Pharisees. There are schools of theology where people lean in their belief. And two of the most prominent ones, the one I grew up in, I'm not terribly happy about it, is what is called dispensationalism and most of you whether you know it or not grew up in that too except those of you who are Catholic how many of you by the way side issue how many of you at one time in your life were Roman Catholics raise your hand look at that it's probably 10% of the people here usually that percentage is more but apart from that and then there's another one which is a little more prominent today than it used to be it's called Reformed Theology. A lot of good people there. You associate Reformed Theology with John Calvin. Now, I don't own up to either one of them. Though your pastor, if somebody would come up to him, I say, are you a people radio? I often ask, Jim, are you Reformed Well, I would sound like that. I will always say I am a radical biblicist. What the Bible teaches, I try to teach. If I understand it right. If it doesn't agree with the Bible, I don't agree with it. So I don't care which side of the fence you're on. That's what we want to be. Anyway, we've got to remember that we do not belong to anybody's group. What we want to do, we want to know, we want to believe, we want to practice the scriptures, wherever that lands. And in most instances, I'll probably land with John Calvin, but don't anybody say, Jim's a Calvinist. I never gave my mind to John Calvin or any other name you can name. Never. I don't do that. And I tell some of our staff once in a while when I've tried to find a modern hero, I will tell them, have no heroes but dead heroes. Because it's only then you know how they finished. Let's find how people finished. So many of them will disappoint you. Anyway... The words of Jesus spoke loudly to these people. They wanted to see him. Nothing has ever changed. I want to tell you something. Why these people came when God speaks and means to be heard by his people, just as these Gentile did. Many of the Jews, most of the Jews weren't. They will hear his voice. And those who are not his people can't hear and won't hear no matter what we say. For the umpteenth time I say, that's the reason I don't scream and holler and yell, grab a cup of water to wipe my brow with all my sweat. It is no sweat. Jesus' words and his works spoke for themselves. Many of these people who were so enthused and so excited were not around when Jesus was crucified. Do you notice that? That's just a few days later. We're talking about just a week later. Where were they? Well, that enthusiasm had dissolved. Why had it dissolved? Because all of a sudden they picked up on the fact that the Messiah they wanted was not in Jesus. He was not that kind of Messiah. He was not a great military chieftain. Didn't come right again on a right horse. He wasn't ready to overthrow the Romans. He came in on a lowly donkey. He came in to capture a people spiritually. And those that heard his voice, they swung around and they worshiped him. They wanted to see Jesus. Those who didn't hear his voice, well, they soon peeled off. Jesus says, now is my time to be glorified. We want to talk about that. Please hear me. There's no holding back the plain truth. What does it mean for him to be glorified? I thought for sure that was a day when he was humiliated. Taken before drugged, drug, before Pontius, uh, condemned in a kangaroo court turned over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman, to inflict crucifixion on him, tore his flesh off piece by piece so you could see the bones. That's the way it was. Almost bleeding out, so weak that he couldn't fully carry the cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Finally, they had to find a a visitor to the city to get him on the Passover day to carry Jesus' cross to the site of the crucifixion. He was mocked and spit on all the way. And the soldiers, does this sound like a glorification, had taken a great crown of thorns and pressed it down on his brow and then in mocking, They beat him with a reed. Ah, gosh! Hurts me to think about it. More blood. And Jesus never cried. He never cried out like a lamb led to the slaughter. I don't see any glory in that. Do you? It looks like the most utter humiliation you could ever see. But Jesus said, my hour has come. The hour for me to be glorified. So let's talk about that glorification. What he means by that, that glorification. Three things. It was his humiliation, his crucifixion. His resurrection and his ascension. All of those were coming together. What did he mean by my glorification? Because then the world was going to see something that he had never seen before the moral perfection of God. And sending his son, son came voluntarily, sending his son into the world to lay down his totally innocent life like the Lamb of God. To pay for the sins of all mankind who would receive him by faith. He went through hellish humiliation to get there. Hellish. But other people had been through that it was who was the son of God put himself through that he died three days later he was resurrected bodily resurrected and then weeks later he ascended back into heaven where did he ascend to back to the right hand of the father That's his glorification. That's what he kept meaning when he said, my hour has not come yet. Now his hour has come. Totally submits to it. And that's your Savior. And he's coming again for you who have trusted in you. The moral perfection of God on display, I don't even have words for it. I don't even understand that kind of love. how a loving God could go so far in conjunction with his son and lay down his life in order to lay a foundation for our redemption. I tell you as your pastor, I don't understand it. I can talk about it, but I can't even find words for it. One of the problems that we have trouble with that is because we don't understand our own sinfulness. None of us understand in this room how undeserving we are. But whether we understand it or not, he died in our place and we could not have been saved without it. I want to say to everyone here, there are always people in our midst who don't know Jesus. Now, some people are church people in every church who don't know Jesus from a bunny rabbit. They've always been like good Jews, just going to synagogue. Others are visitors among us. We're glad to have you. But you're lost You're profoundly lost. You don't know God. You've got no hope without Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he showed you God as God had never showed himself. When he put himself, he did. I laid down my life and I will take it up again. And now he stands at the right hand of the Father in heaven, waiting for the signal to come again and receive us unto himself. I would urge every one of you not to press it. But while the mercy of God is on such grand display, come to see Jesus. Seek him and see him. He will let you find him. But you know what? The Father will draw you if you're His. But He's not going to make you seek Jesus. He's not going to force you to see Jesus. He will touch your heart and your heart will say, perhaps, there's a ring of truth in all that I'm hearing. You may feel the conviction of the Spirit of God. Conviction, I mean that tug that says, that's right. That's something I need to do. And then there may be that drawback. But I don't want to do that. You're too proud. You're too proud. I've seen people like that. They're just too proud to say, yes, that's right. I am a sinner, I am lost, and I need the Savior, and he's the one, and he's the Lord of all the universe. I need to bow, be humble. He humbled himself, went through all that hell just for me. How can I be proud? No, if you want me, God, come and get me. He's not going to do that. He's going to touch your heart and say it's the truth. Your move. Your move to repent the first motion of faith and to receive him as your Savior. Your move. You only have so many moves. And then you are what? Dead. You're either dead on the outside or you're so dead on the inside that will never happen. That's what I fear most. I don't really fear those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus. I mean, it could happen. I don't really fear you walking outside this building trying to get in your door, fall right at your door, dead of a heart attack. What I fear most is you hearing and 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 hearing. You're a goner. You'll die down here, but you were dead right here. You couldn't hear his voice anymore. Don't play around with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who came to see Jesus. We thank you for that great movement of God there in what we call the triumphal feast. After the Lazarus effect, we thank you, our Father. Now we pray we'll learn from it. The Spirit of God will move our hearts to move, to get off the dime, to come like the Gentiles and say we would see Jesus. We would pray that that would happen. We ask it in the name of the Savior. Amen.